Helpful, Evan? Yeah. All right, good. All right, well, let's, let's um, I kind of want to pray again. I, I'm going to tell you this. I got a little bit of sleep last night. We came in late, unpacked, getting ready for today. Low sleep, but I've got uh, the joy of the Lord and also adrenaline going on in my behalf, on my favor. But I do want to just pray again and just as we prepare our hearts for what God has to speak to us. Um, Lord, your word is good. Your word is true. Your word is faithful. And Lord, your word also challenges us. And I think even for myself this morning and for each of us who are here, Lord, we want to have hearts that are receptive to you and receptive to your word. Uh, Lord, we want to be the kind of people who uh, try to discern what it is that you're speaking to us in this most sure and most clear uh, way that you do through the scripture. And Lord, some of us, we might be challenged. I know I'm challenged. Uh, this morning with a difficult passage, uh, but one, Lord, that has so much in it to encourage us and to produce fruit in our lives. And God, that's our heart's desire, that our lives would be fruitful, Lord, that our lives would be marked by an encounter with Jesus Christ and the truth of his gospel and the truth of his word in such a way that we would not be the same, Lord, when we leave today as when we were when we came in, myself included, all of us. And so, God, we give you this time. We surrender it to you, and we surrender ourselves to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're talking about, once again, a difficult subject in Scripture. And we've kind of hinted at it. We've alluded to it. We've done the flyby on it. But now we need to do a bit of a deep dive. And it's this question that has been a challenge for the church for 2,000 years, and one that will not be resolved with perfection, uh, will not be resolved to everyone's satisfaction this morning or any morning, but one that is indeed important and challenging for the church. And this is just how in the world is God's grace applied to people? How is it that God uh, bestows His grace on some and not on others? And what does it mean for us as we come to a God not on our merit, not on our works, not on what we've done, but fully relying upon what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so we get these big words like election again and predestination again. And we wonder, what do these things mean? But in order to understand them well, I need to do a very short recap of what we've seen so far from the book of Romans and what we've talked about in regards to this topic. So if you recall, in Romans 1... Paul said that the righteous by faith shall live. The righteous by faith shall live. If, you're, if you want to be a righteous person, it will not be by striving. It will not be by perfecting yourself. You will not be righteous by learning more. You will not be righteous by studying this book. You really will not. You will be righteous if and only if you put your faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And two things happen when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. The first, Paul says, is that we receive a righteousness that is apart from works. In Romans 3, he says, everyone's sinned, everyone's fallen short of the glory of God, everyone falls away, everyone, uh, no one seeks God, no one is righteous. 
but there is a righteousness apart from law that is given to men through Jesus Christ from his death on the cross. So brothers and sisters, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive as a legal judgment the full righteousness of Jesus Christ and he takes upon himself the full penalty for your sin. Can I get one little amen for that? (laughs) Amen. That's the first thing, is that you didn't deserve it, but God did it for you anyway. But then Paul talks about this second thing. And we looked at Romans 5 through 8, and he basically makes the case that if you're willing to suffer with Christ, then also you will receive the fruit of Christ's work as well. And this, I believe, the, the biggest part of this is that you will have not only legally a position of righteousness, but you will begin to live out righteousness as you submit to God's plan of discipleship for your life, that he conforms you into the image of Jesus, not just in name and in status, but also in practice. So the second way that the gospel brings righteousness is that when it's effective and when we submit to its work in our life, we actually become like our Savior. We actually do the things that we couldn't do by trying harder, couldn't do by learning more, couldn't do by trying to perfect ourselves. As we yield to the Lord, God begins to do those things through us. And I'm reminded, I talked about having fruitful lives. I'm reminded again of Jesus being the vine and we are the branches and we could do no good thing apart from him. But when we abide in him as he abides in us, he produces all kinds of fruit in us. And we have the actual outworking of righteousness in our lives. So there's this position of righteousness, this legal status, and then there's the acting out, the the living out of righteousness. Interestingly, Paul does not say that acting out this righteousness is the determining factor of whether you are legally righteous. He says it's by faith alone. It's a work of God in you through Jesus Christ. It's his work that makes you righteous. But not only so, it's his work that then makes you to act righteous. And we could think of in Philippians where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is, God's, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. God is at work in us to form us and conform us into the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's just a really quick recap of where we've been. Now, the question that's burning on the minds of Paul's early readers is a question that we don't think about at all. The question that's burning on the mind of his early readers is, Paul, if what you're saying is true and you're proving it from Abraham and you're proving it from the life of David and you're proving it you know, through the Old Testament Scripture, why is it that so many in Israel have rejected Jesus? Didn't God choose them? Didn't God elect them? Didn't God predestine them? Didn't God say that he would work righteousness out in them? And yet we see so many in Israel who have turned away from God. Doesn't that nullify your message? Now, I know this question is not one that was on your mind when you came to church this morning. None of you got up and you're brushing your teeth and you're thinking, I wonder how the gospel can be true if a lot of Jewish people didn't accept Jesus, right? No one was doing that, right? 
You weren't getting dressed and thinking, I just don't know if I can believe in grace and faith because it seems like, you know, God's people were abandoned when Jesus came. I, I just don't know. Should, should, no one's putting on a tie for church, right? But I, I just don't know if I can accept this message, right? Would anyone? No. So why is this relevant to us? I think it's this. Whether you feel the pain of that question or not, if God did abandon his people Israel, then he can abandon you too. And if God didn't abandon Israel, then he won't abandon you either. If God's plan for Israel has been, will be fulfilled, then his plan for you will be fulfilled. And if it hasn't, then his plan for you will not or may not. It's a risk. And I do know that many of us struggle with wondering, can God really save me? I'll tell you. Uh, you know, I think, Denise, you have so much faith. You thank the Lord for our wonderful vacation. I don't even know if you've heard about our vacation yet. <laughs> maybe it was wonderful, maybe it wasn't. Right? I'll tell you this. We had, we had what I would call a challenging vacation. Right? It was, a, it was a difficult one. It had some really difficult, challenging conversations in it. And yet, I believe God was working in that to do good. Right? But even as I got up this morning, I thought, Lord, I'm about to get in the pulpit. I need to repent of some things. I need to confess some things. I need your forgiveness for things. And I was praying at 6.10 this morning, still laying down in bed, and I was praying, Lord, I need your grace today, and I know I don't deserve it. Lord, I need you. I need you to forgive me. And I know that it's for the same things I've asked you to forgive me before. And there's no reason on my end that you should do it. And yet, Lord, I trust that you will because you've promised it. And I believe your promises are true. But if one of God's promises fail then how can we trust any of God's promises? This is a challenge we face in life, right? I know some of my promises have failed and then people have trouble trusting me. Some of your promises have failed and people may have trouble trusting you, right? We all have experienced that, right? So if even one of God's promises fail, they all come into question. So Paul's responding to that and it's interesting that the way Paul responds to this is he starts talking about God's sovereign will. And the big question that he's trying to answer, which again, none of us woke up with this morning, but it's an important one, is, is the grace of God just or unjust, given what we see with Israel? Okay, so that's the framing of this. So we're going to talk about historically and, and theologically and contextually what Paul's saying but then I think by the end, you'll see how this is very relevant to your life right here this morning uh, in this place where you are in your walk with the Lord. Does that sound like a deal? All right, let's do it. Romans 9. We're going to be covering most of the chapter. So I'm going to go kind of quick. But we're starting right in verse 1. And uh, just remember where we were just a f right before the verse ahead. Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? And again, this question then arises, well, if nothing can separate us from the love of God, why does it seem that Israel has been separated from the love of God? And here's what Paul has to say. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul's saying, you know, Paul's a Jew, and he's saying, I wish if there were some way for me to receive all the curses of the Old Testament if all of my brothers and sisters, my fellow countrymen, all the Jewish people could receive the blessings of God. And he uses this language that to us, you know, to be cursed and cut off, it just, I mean, that sounds bad enough, but he's literally using the, the legal cursing language of the Old Testament where God says, if you follow my covenant, these good things will happen. And if you don't follow my covenant, you'll be cursed and cut off. Paul's saying, if I could have the fate of the Babylonians, if I could have the fate of the Philistines, if I could have the fate of all the, uh, you know, the Ittites and the Imites and the Tites, Tites, Tites in the Old Testament, if I could have their fate, I'd take it. If only my fellow Jews could have the blessings of God that I've received in Jesus Christ. And do you remember in chapter 3, this is a very quick moment where he says, you know, there's much benefit to being a Jew. First of all, and he, he gives his first of all, and he never gives his second of all, his third of all. He got, he, like Paul gets totally distracted right in the middle of a sentence. Right? He's definitely dictating. He's, this, is not a, this is not a term paper that he edited. He's just talking. Someone's writing it down. They're trying to keep up. He's like, first of all, and he never gets to a second. Well, he finally comes back to it, and he says, theirs is the adoption to sonship, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Paul says there's much benefit to being a Jew. They've been given all these blessings from God. They, had, they saw the temple where God's physical presence came down and rested on the temple. Can you imagine coming to church every Sunday and you see a cloud come down and come into the sanctuary? They saw that physically, right in front of their eyes. You know how churches used to have those bells, right? The call to worship. Imagine if the cloud came across Dedham and everyone's like, oh, God's here. It's time to go to church. And he rested in the sanctuary and everyone would be flooding to come in, wouldn't they? They saw that with their eyes. They had the word of God. They had the covenants. They had these promises. If you obey me, I will bless you beyond your expectations, beyond measure. He says, theirs are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? They're the ones who receive these promises. Abraham was told, I will bless you and I will bless the nations through you. And even through them comes the Messiah, Jesus Christ. There's much benefit and being a Jew. But he says in verse 6, it is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Now, by the way, just a little historical reminder, Israel is the name that God gave Jacob 
but it's also the name of the nation. So he's saying not everyone who's descended from the patriarchs is actually a part of the nation in the spiritual sense, right? And he's going to explain what he means. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now he's quoting the Old Testament. Uh, He says, in other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Guys, you remember Abraham, right? He had a wife named Sarah, and he was really old, and his wife couldn't have children. And God said, you're going to have a son. You're going to be the father of many nations. He says, how can this be, God? He said, I don't know if you've noticed. I'm really old, and my wife is barren. And God says, you're going to have a son. So Abraham gets to thinking, and he says, you know, I know how I can have a son. My wife has a servant, and I can sleep with her and have a son. And his wife agrees. He sleeps with a servant. He has a son. His name is Ishmael. And then God comes back to him. He says, Abraham, no, no, no. I'm going to give you a son, and it's going to be through your wife, Sarah. And Abraham tells God, God, how can this be? I'm an old man. My wife is barren. We can't have children. So he has a legal son, but he hasn't had the son of the promise yet. He hasn't had the son of faith yet. I know it's a really bad joke, but I can't help but making it every time we talk about this. I just imagine Abraham, it's dusk. He comes out of his tent. He goes into Sarah's tent. And all the other people in his little community are thinking, what does he think he's doing? He's an old man, and his wife is barren. But Abraham goes, and by faith, yes, you can have very faith-filled sex. By faith, they had a baby, and that baby was Isaac. Ishmael was the legal son of Abraham, but Isaac was the son of the promise, the son of faith. And so God tells Abraham, send Isaac away. I'll take care of him. You send him away. I'm going to fulfill my promise through Isaac. All right? This is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. And he did, through Sarah, have a son, Isaac. So then Isaac grows up, and he gets married. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father, Isaac. So Isaac gets married to Rebekah. They have two twin sons, Okay? Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau hated. So again, he's going back to Genesis. He's going back to the Old Testament to make his case. He's saying, look, it's appropriate for the older son to be the one who receives the promise, the inheritance. But God reverses the order and he gives it to the younger son. By the way, was Abraham the oldest son of his father Terah? No. Was Noah the oldest son? No. Uh, Adam and Eve had two sons. One of them was murdered and then their third son received the promise. Over and over, God skips over the people that the world thinks should receive the promise and he gives it to the ones who the world thinks shouldn't receive the promise. Who in the family of um, Jesse is made king? The oldest, tallest, strongest sons? 
No, it's the youngest, the, the smallest son, David, who's made king. God is constantly looking over, passing over the people that it, that it looks like should be receiving the promise, and he gives the promise to the ones who do not, in any outward appearance, deserve it. The same thing in the church, right? What does it say in Corinthians? God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong things of the world. He's chosen the unwise things of the world to shame the wise things of the world. Now, you may not, be like called, you may not like to be called weak and, and unwise, but here we are, <laughs> right? Here we stand, the weak, the unwise, the needy, the helpless, and God has called us, but not always the ones who are in these high positions. God is always doing that. And here's the thing. Paul makes a point, and the Scripture, that's more, the Holy Spirit makes the point. He says, it was not by works, but by him who called. So Paul's making it clear. It's not even that God saw into the future and saw that Jacob was going to be better than Esau. Jacob and Esau are the sons of Rebekah and Isaac. It's not like he saw Jacob's going to be better than Esau. I mean, Jacob is the biggest scoundrel in the Scriptures. And he has this big moment with God where he wrestles God and God gives him a wrench in his hip and he, he, he limps for the rest of his life and he gives him the name Israel. Jacob, by the way, means deceiver, right? And he gives him a new name to say, I'm giving you a new life. But Jacob's horrible still after that. He's horrible to his kids. He, you know, he, he doesn't care if his older sons die as long as his younger son's alive, right? I mean, he's just a bad guy. He's not a good person. And his kids are wretched. Jacob, is not, Jacob does not earn God's favor in any way. Esau, man, the guy's, the guy's not bright, but at least he has some honor compared to his brother Jacob. Jacob goes after he acquires all this wealth in a foreign land. He comes back to his brother Esau, and his brother forgives him for stealing his birthright and his blessing. Well, he actually bought it for bowl of lentil stew, but, you know, practically stealing. So Paul's making the case. It's not because of his works. It's just because God wanted to. Now, this brings up a big question for Paul's readers and probably brings up a big question for you. If God is just doing it because he wants to, how is that just? How is that fair? Do you feel that tension? Anyone? How is it fair? Paul poses the question like this. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now that statement seems pretty straightforward, and it doesn't seem pretty emotional, very emotional, right? It's like, yeah, I'll do this or I'll do that, right? But this quote comes from Exodus, the story where Moses is up on the mountain and he asks God, can I see your face? And the reason he's asking God, can I see your face, is because he's really concerned that he and the people he's leading, these millions of, of Israelites, are going to either die in the desert or be destroyed by God in the desert or attacked by enemies in the desert. And he says, if you don't go with us, I'm not going. By the way, you can have boundaries with God. If you're not going, I'm not going. 
So if you don't show me your face, this deal is off. Why is he so scared? Because God had just killed thousands of them for building a golden calf as an idol and calling it Yahweh. They didn't even have the decency to name it a different name. They didn't just say, this is our God. They said, this is Yahweh. This cow made out of gold is Yahweh. And Aaron is there fashioning this cow for the people. And they're bowing down and worshiping it. And God strikes them dead where they stand. And Moses is like, whoa, I don't know if I'm in on this. And God says, well, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Bam. By the way, Moses gets mercy. God says, look, I'm not going to show you my face because that'll kill you. I'll show you my back. Stand here in the rock and I'll walk by and you'll know that I'm going with you. And that's good enough for Moses. Moses set a boundary. God negotiated. God won. Right? He says, it's up to me. It's not up to you. Okay? And here's the thing. God can do that. Let's just start there. God can do that. Now, in a minute, we're going to talk about this whole election and predestination thing. And honestly, it's in the scripture. I'm teaching it. I, I honestly, like, I don't care that much where you land on this thing. I don't think it's something that should divide the church. I don't think it's something that should be promote hostility in any way. You don't have to walk out of here agreeing with me. I may not walk out of here agreeing with me. It's a complex topic. It's nuanced. It's difficult. But here's what I'm going to say. We have to at least be in a place where we say God can do that if he wants to. Okay? God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe me anything. We talked about constitutional rights a few weeks ago. Rights are what we have before other human beings. We do not have them before God. God can do whatever he wants, and it will be just. When he says, is God unjust? He says, no, I'll prove it. God said he can do whatever he wants. That's Paul's argument that it's not unjust, because God said it. Do you see what that kind of faith is? It's the kind of faith that says, I don't know how you're doing this, God. I don't have to know. I don't have to understand why you're doing it, how you're doing it. If you say you're doing it, that's good enough for me. I'm going to trust you. That's the kind of way that we need to approach all of these things. It does not, therefore, verse 16, it does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. This is an echo of John chapter 1, where he says that those who are born of Christ are not born of human will or a husband's decision. God is the one who does it. It does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And thank goodness, because who seeks God? Who has the desire to seek God on their own? Who can put in the effort to be righteous on their own? So thank God it does not depend on human desire or effort. Thank the Lord, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, we're back in Exodus now before the time when Moses was on the rock, this is when, when he says to the Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says what? I don't think so. 
They're staying here. That's our labor force. You got to be crazy. I'm not letting you go out in the desert to worship some God I've never heard of. What are you, nuts? For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you know the context of that statement in Exodus? Pharaoh had just agreed to let the people go and God hardened his heart so that he wouldn't let the people go. Why? Because he hadn't sent all ten plagues yet. Well, why does that matter? Because the ten plagues are ten gods of Egypt and God's saying, I'm stronger than all of your gods. So you can't let them go yet because I haven't shown my power yet. And so he says, I raised you up for this purpose. Raised you up meaning you live for this purpose or raised you up meaning I made you Pharaoh for this purpose because who installs kings? The Lord in heaven. Guys, get out and vote, but the Lord installs kings. Like, do not be fooled in thinking that this is a democracy ultimately. Ultimately, God is in charge. Verse 18, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now let me ask you this. When Pharaoh said, I'm, okay, Moses, you've sent, you've sent these plagues. I'm getting a little worried. I'm going to let the people go. And then he changed his mind and said, no, I'm not going to let the people go. Do you think Pharaoh is thinking, look, Moses, you're a good guy. I really like you. I'd like to let the people go, but your Lord won't let me. Do you think that's what he was thinking? Like, I, everything inside me wants to do the right thing, but God's forcing me to sin. It's the worst. Like, you have no idea, Moses. If you only understood, you'd have, you'd have pity on me. No, he's not thinking that at all. When God is doing this, he's not, it's, this, it's this crazy thing where, in a sense, he's not overriding the will of Pharaoh at all because Pharaoh is living in disobedience to the God of the universe so blatantly that he's calling himself a God. He's literally saying, I am a God, and I am more powerful than your God, Moses. So God isn't making Pharaoh do anything that he's not already inclined to do. The problem is Pharaoh was getting scared and God had to make sure that his will was done. And God does this. He reserves the right. Now, I don't know if he does it with every decision of Pharaoh's. I don't know if he does it with every decision of yours. I know that sometimes, at least, God reserves the right to make things work out the way he wants. Now, let me ask you this. If you don't believe that, don't pray. Why would you pray? Why would you pray for God to bring your uh, wayward child to faith or your, your friend uh, back to, into relationship? Or why would you pray for your, your parents to, to uh, come, you know, uh, restore relationship with their, with, their, with their sibling? You know, whatever it is. Why would you pray for anyone to do anything if you don't believe that God can actually change someone's mind and heart, it's almost a prerequisite of prayer that God be sovereign, that God be in charge. Otherwise, it's just, God, will you do this? And he'll be like, well, I'll, I'll try. I'll try to do it. I don't know, I don't, I don't know if it's going to work. You know, no, God can do it. But one of you will say to me, 
then why does God still blame us for who is able to resist his will? Do you see the tension in these two questions? Why does God blame us? Meaning, if God's the one doing it, then why am I getting blamed? Or, what does he say? Who is able to resist his will? If I'm going to be blamed, shouldn't I be able to resist his will? And Paul has the perfect opportunity right now to say, guys, you're misunderstanding me. Of course God doesn't blame you. Or, guys, you're misunderstanding me. Of course you can resist his will. But Paul doesn't say either of those two things. He says, who are you, human being, to talk back to God? Who are you to talk back to God? This is the same thing we talked about when we were talking about how we endure suffering and how Job challenged God and said, God, on what basis are you causing me to suffer? I haven't done anything wrong. And God doesn't say, you have done something wrong. And he doesn't say, I'm not the one causing you the suffering. God says, I'm sorry, who are you? Where were you when I formed the seeds? Where were you when I gathered the snow and, and the canopies so that I could send it to the earth? Where were you when I tamed the Leviathan? Where were you when I formed the earth? I don't think you have standing here, Job. I don't think you have a right to bring this case to trial. That's what Paul says here. Who are you? Who are you to put God on trial? You don't have the right. You don't have standing. Now again, hard to hear. I don't know how else to read this other than just like that. A few weeks ago, or maybe a month ago, when we were looking at uh, the section in Romans 8, and I said there's two ways to understand predestination. God either predestines the church, he elects the church, and whoever joins themselves into the church is saved, or God predestines and elects individuals into the church, and they will be saved. What I'm getting from this, it seems to indicate that God, with Israel at least, was deciding which of the individuals could be in Israel, true Israel, true sons and daughters of Abraham. And the question, well, then why does God still blame us? He says, who are you to ask that of God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes? and some for common use? What if God, now this might be hypothetical, but it might not. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? Man, I do not like that sentence. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction. Are you saying that God created some people just so that they could experience his wrath and be destroyed? Paul says, what if? So here's the thing. I don't know if God does that. But if he did, it would be just. Because the potter has the right to make out of the clay whatever he wants. The clay does not have the right to tell the potter, I want to be made differently. Man, I don't like this. 
Anyone here like this? No one likes this. Why does Paul have to put this in the Bible? Why did the Holy Spirit put this in the Bible? Because he knows that in every culture on earth, in every society on earth, every fallen heart that has ever beat on this planet, the tendency is to think that somehow I am the center of the universe, I am the master of my fate, I am an independent person, and I know best how to run my life. And then the message of God comes, and what we do is we say, oh, maybe we do this. That's a great message. God is loving. God is gracious. God is merciful. God is forgiving. I'm going to subordinate that right under my authority. So God will be gracious to me if I let him be gracious to me. God will have mercy on me if I show faith in him. And essentially what it becomes, not on purpose, not consciously on purpose, but what it becomes is, God, I'm going to put my money in the slot. I'm going to push the button and you better give me what I ask for. I have faith that I deserve grace. I've earned it. Or, I am horrible, you better give me wrath. I've earned it. And God's like, it just doesn't work that way, buddy. You're not in charge. Yeah, you deserve wrath, but I'm giving you mercy. Right? And, and, and you, you don't even know what faith is unless I give it to you. Man, I don't like this. Not one bit. What if God did this, preparing people for destruction to be, uh, to be the ones who bear his wrath? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, prepared for destruction, prepared for glory, even us whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? We'll go into the quotes in a minute. What's the Paul's argument here? It's really important to understand it historically, contextually, theologically first. Paul's argument here is, it looks like the people of Israel have rejected God by rejecting Jesus. But God made a promise to Israel that his love would endure forever. So Paul says, not everyone who looks like Israel is actually Israel. Not everyone who says they're a son of Abraham, is actually a son of Abraham. By the way, Jesus said the same thing. Do you remember when he's fighting with the Pharisees and they say, we're sons of Abraham? He says, no, your father is Satan because you're a liar. And Satan is the father of lies. So if you lie, you are not a son of Abraham. But they were sons of Abraham in every outward respect. But inside, they were sons of Satan. This goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God said, the seed of the serpent will be at enmity with the seed of the woman. And so all of history, every human being has either been a son of righteousness or a son of that serpent, a son of disobedience. And what Paul is saying is, the way you know which group you're in is not by how good you are. It's by the gifts that God has bestowed on you. 
so let me say a couple of things real quick about this. Because I know what I'm thinking, and so maybe some of you are thinking this too. Does that mean there's no hope for so-and-so? Does that mean there's no hope for this person? I look at their life. They are totally opposed to God. They are totally against God. They're wretched. They're horrible. Is there no hope for that person? My answer to you is, look at Jacob. Jacob was that person, and yet look what God promised him and God did for him. Did Jacob show a lot of fruit by the end of his life that God had redeemed and restored him? No, I don't like that either. Isn't it supposed to be that the longer you're a believer, the more fruit you have? Yeah, but it doesn't always happen, does it? Does that mean that your faith was counterfeit? No, it doesn't. It just means you're a really annoying, bad person who has a hard time doing the right thing and God still loves you. Like, end the camp. I'm in the camp, guys. Like, that's what it means. Or, but what about so-and-so? They're so nice, but they don't love Jesus. They're so nice, but they don't have faith. It's like, ah, Paul's clear about that one, too. Unless they put their faith in Jesus, I don't know where the hope is coming from. And I think we give people false hope, hope a lot, right? What is the message we like to share? God loves you. God loves you the way you are. And that's true. But unless you have faith in Jesus, what's the hope in? And again, it's a hard message. It's not a pleasant message. But there's no way around it. So Paul is, you know, historically, contextually, he's saying, He's saying Israel was not really abandoned because not all of them were Israel. This is the same thing that we face in the church when we say, well, what about the person who walked away? Did they lose their salvation? John says in 1 John, those who went away from us were never of us. If not all who are descendant of Abraham are sons of Abraham, then not all who are in the church are really in the church. Again, Jesus talks about this. He says there's, there's wheat and there's tares, right? There's the, there's, the, there's the part that you want to keep and the part you want to get rid of. And he says there's also a field that has, that has weeds and, and, and your harvest in it. And he says don't tear out the weeds too early or you might throw out some of the grain accidentally. He says, in the end, and the threshing floors, when they throw up the wheat in the air and the wind blows away all the chaff and the tares, then we'll know who's really in and who's out. Man, I don't like that. No one likes that. But Jesus isn't about giving you the message you want to hear. He's about giving you the message that you need. And the message you need is that if you don't have your faith in Jesus Christ, for your eternal security and salvation, then your hope is misplaced. And if you do have your faith in Jesus Christ and you can't get your eyes off your sin, then your eyes are in the wrong place. Because it's not about what you do and what you've done. It's about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. It's about whether you've been placed into that righteousness by faith. This is why Paul spent so much time dealing with the question, So does sin not matter? Should we just sin all we want and let grace abound? He says, no, no. Because real grace in your life does produce some fruit. 
the little fruit that Jacob displayed in his life was at the end of his life and he continues to pass the blessing on to his grandchildren because he believes God's words are true. He was a scoundrel. He was a loser. He was a jerk. He was a really bad father, but he didn't give up on the promise. In God's economy, that's enough fruit. It matters more what you do with the promise than what you do with your lifestyle. Your lifestyle matters. And I will say this, the more sin you have in your life, the less enjoyable your life will be. Okay? Fair? But that's not what determines your eternal future. What do you do with the promise? And so here Paul gives us a list of quotations. Most of them are from Hosea. I think, yeah, Hosea and Isaiah. He says, as it says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. In the Old Testament, God promised that there would be people that were outside of Israel who were not sons of Abraham who would be brought in and called the same as the sons of Abraham. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. Those who are not my loved one, I will call my loved one. So God had already promised, first of all, that us Gentiles, most of us are Gentiles in this room, that we would be brought in, that the grace of God would be extended to us even though we were not part of this special group that God had elected, that God had predestined, that language is used. And in the very place where it was said to them, (coughs) you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. So that he's explaining, this is how we know from the Old Testament that the Gentiles can be brought in. But what about all the Israelites who are pushed out? Well, he has an answer for that too. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. Paul's saying it is not a failure of God's promise that so many people of Israel reject Christ. It is actually a fulfillment of God's promise that so many have rejected Christ. Just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Do you remember those cities, Sodom and Gomorrah? God sends fire down from heaven and utterly destroys them. Everyone in them dies. Isaiah saying, Israel deserved the same thing. If it wasn't for the grace of God giving us descendants, we too would have been wiped off the face of the earth because we have sinned no less than Sodom and Gomorrah. No less. In fact, I would argue they sinned more because they had more of a revelation of who God was. They saw the glory come down in the temple. They watched him lead them in the desert. They saw him destroy the Egyptians in the sea. They watched him bring water out of a rock. They watched him send manna from quail from heaven to feed them. They watched all these things that God did to come down and destroy the prophets of Baal and light the altar that had been doused with water when Elijah was praying uh, when there was a drought in Israel. They saw... uh, the, the, the battles where without even lifting their swords, God caused their enemies to turn against themselves and free them from the torment of an oppressor outside. They saw God send them into exile and then graciously bring them back. Restore the temple, restore Jerusalem, restore the walls. They saw these things and yet they disobeyed and turned and gave up their faith in the promise. 
this is what Paul's saying. If you don't have the promise in your heart, then you're not part of the community. Doesn't matter if it's Israel or the church. Now, by the way, Paul's going to go on to say, God's not done with Israel. Israel's not out of the picture. You know, some people think that we're the new Israel. And there's a sense in which that's true, but there's a very big sense in which it's not. Israel is not over. Their story hasn't ended. Right? But God has brought us alongside Israel. And if anything, not that we take over, and if anything, we've been integrated spiritually into Israel. But God's not done with the nation. He's not done with the people. There's more coming. But he says, don't be surprised. He says, I'm not saying this because I don't like... Some people think Paul was an anti-Semite, anti-Jewish. But Paul, Paul was Jewish. He is Jewish. He's like, I would give everything for this not to be true. I would give my eternal security for this to be different if my people would put their faith in Jesus. But as we'll see, he's looking for a day when they will. He's looking for a day when they will. Okay, so that's historical, that's theological, that's the context. What does this have to do with you and me? Well, a few things. One, we will see people we love turn away from God. And we will see people we love never turn to God. And we will see people we love struggling trying to turn to God and struggling to do it and it's like they can't do it. I want you to understand, first of all, that no one even tries on their own. Nobody. God is not keeping anyone from himself because apart from him, no one seeks him. No one. Okay? Anyone who's even inching towards Jesus that is a gift from the Holy Spirit. That is a gift from the Lord. Honor that gift. Fan that gift. Pray into that gift. Share regarding that gift. You know, keep making the grace of God known and apparent to a person who is leaning, trying to lean into that, no matter where they are. If they're leaning away, take hope. God can do something about it. God is not powerless when your loved one is turning from him. Right? A lot of people look, whatever, however you land on this issue of like, does God choose or do we choose? I'm just going to say this. However it works, God is not powerless. So you have every reason to hope and pray for your loved ones to come to faith. And if you still think that on the scales of justice, this doesn't seem fair, I would just ask this final question. When it comes to the most important decision you or anyone else could possibly ever make, would you rather trust yourself or them to do it, or would you rather trust God to do it? Like, I think even a person who is generally opposed to God would say, you know, I guess, I guess if I had to choose, I would let the person who knows everything about me and everything about this world and loves me, and wants good for me, and who knows how things will turn out better than I will, I guess if push comes to shove, they should probably make the choice. But there's this thing in our heart that resists that with everything that it has. 
and it has to be broken down. It has to be uh, assaulted by the Holy Spirit. And once the crack is in that armor, maybe then that's when someone puts their faith in Jesus. But my goodness, the, the wall is still sort of there, isn't it? Like, don't we all feel that wall at work? Don't we all feel that resistance in our heart? I wish every single day I woke up and did exactly what God wanted me to do. And I wake up every single day and want to do exactly what I want to do. They're both true. And I have the Holy Spirit. And I'm a believer. And I trust this word. And still it's hard. So church, my encouragement to you is whether it's someone else that you're praying for, whether it's your own self and own internal struggle, or whether it's just this difficulty of living out the calling that you've been given in Jesus Christ, work it out with fear and trembling because you are not the one who's able to make it work. That's why God says work out your salvation with fear and trembling because you can't control it. But trust and pray and lean into the God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes. I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord because Jesus is the one who did it. And none of those things out there, none of those things in here can overcome that. My little takeaway for today God's grace is never forced, it's never earned, it's never required. It is freely given and he is justified in his choice to give it or not. But all that's to say, you know, it's not unfair. However you come down on this, it's not unfair. God really can do what he wants and thank God he does. Let's pray. Lord, again, I feel like that your word was a hard one today. Uh, and it's one that raises probably more questions than answers in some sense. But God, if the only answer we walk away with today is that we can trust you in the way that you operate in the world, that'll be enough. God, help us to believe and trust that whatever it is that you do, it is the best way it can be done. That God, however it is that you order the universe and order my life, it is the best way it can be done. And God, help each one of us to trust that whatever we see around us, that you're at work, that you're able to do what it is you want to do, and that we can pray for the things that our hearts long for because you are not absent. You are in uh, intimately involved, intimately involved in our lives and the lives of the people we care about. God, we ask today that as we leave this place and as we ponder 
and reflect on what it is that you've spoken to us, not so much from me, but from your word. Lord, that we would have hearts that are simply receptive to your goodness. Lord, simply receptive to your justness and receptive to your glory, which really is what it all comes down to. Lord, it's your glory. We're not the center of it all. You are. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.